Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and arguing about whether the milk goes in your teacup before or after the tea. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I'm into bubbly water and bubbly people. Today on the show, we're talking with Michael Honey, who is Managing Director at Ice Lab. Hi, Michael. Hello. Welcome, Michael. Glad to have you here. Yes, thanks for coming on the show. So we'll dive right in and ask you to tell us about uh, your path to leadership. How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Hmm. So I guess, like for most people, you don't necessarily know how you're going to get there. Uh, it makes sense in retrospect, but at the time, you just kind of do what comes along. So I guess my start in this was I um, was a young budding academic. I was thinking about uh, completing a PhD in philosophy. I did undergrad and, and master's in philosophy, and I was just really, really poor. And I uh, got a job through a friend like you normally do at what was at the time a, uh, a Macintosh reseller and uh, advertising agency. Like it was a sort of a hybrid organization that had uh, one owner with several businesses underneath it. And I worked essentially as a like young smart guy who knew about computers and transitioned through a couple of roles quite quickly in that organization, getting into things like digital video and the very, very early internet. This is back in 94, 95. And at one stage, uh, managed to help that organization, the advertising agency part of that organization, win a, a major contract. And at that time, they needed to get a, a creative director. And the boss of the organization asked me to write a, an ad for a creative director. And it was one of those moments where you think, I, I could go for this or I could not. And I went in and said to, to my boss at the time, you know, you should make me the creative director. How about it? And I knew at the time it was like I was asking for something that I probably wasn't necessarily, I hadn't done the, the, the work to do. But he said yes. And that was, I guess, my first step into that sort of thing was to, to be given what is a reasonably senior role in an advertising agency, not so much a management role, but a leadership role from a creative perspective. And I was, you know, kind of young and arrogant, and that's where I started. Um, well, and let me let me interrupt you and ask about that. When you say advertising agency, and like before Google ads and Facebook ads, like you're talking like traditional, like I'm picturing Mad Men because I have no other point of reference. So what what <laughs> was advertising agency life How like? How much smoking happened in the office? That's well, I right. Am, I am old enough to have had smoking happen in the office. When I was doing my, my first degree, I worked for a while um, in what was actually usually like the HR office. And the, the two women who worked there smoked and it was like, man, in retrospect, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> they have their asses suit off. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, advertising agencies. Yeah, it's kind of what you'd expect. It wasn't really Madman style. It was thirty years after that, so uh, we were not smoking in the office or wearing suits. But and it was a small city. So I live in Canberra in Australia, which is uh, I guess a regional city. It's four hundred thousand people or something like that. So an advertising agency slash graphic design studio back then in in ninety four or thereabouts was a newly computerized place where people would do traditional graphic design, so um, print and then television and radio and stuff like that, the advertising. And my main entry point into that was doing um, video post-production 
video editing, writing for that, directing for it and so on. I was into theatre and stuff when I was at university and so I had a skill set that enabled me both to do the computer part but also the creative part. So it would actually, like in terms of the stuff that I had done before my you know, career type job, um, that was actually a pretty good transition. So I actually did have the, the skills that I needed. And yeah, so it was making television ads, which is great fun. Like it's, it's like working in advertising is fun if you are a young person who can put the effort in, but it is also, it's a, I mean, it's, it's selling things that people don't necessarily want for money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's, yeah, it's selling your soul. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then the reason that I actually got out of it, I mean, the, the, the transition from there was um, I, I did that for quite some time. And the, the problem with advertising is that the, the more money you make as you go up in your career, the, the less meaningful the stuff becomes. So when you get up to the, to, to the Mad Men level, um, a show which I've never actually watched, but I'm familiar with. Now you're going to have to. One episode <laughs> myself. So yeah, my, my asking you about this is very <laughs> Anyways, well, it might just be too painful to watch. I don't know if I, you know, if I can handle it. As you as you go up in the industry, the stuff that you do is is more and more reprehensible. You end up at the top end being given stacks of money to spend lots of money on building short films for nothing useful at all. So it's it's not really very it's, it, it's not very ethically supportable, I and mean, it also just feels like you're not really doing anything very useful. And I was finding it difficult to actually talk to the clients because the clients would say, "Well, what about this thing?" And I'd be, you know like all cool people had gone beyond broadcast television by this stage. And I had really no connection with what they were doing. So I moved um, away from uh, being the, like a generalized creative director of an advertising agency to the interactive director at a, a, another larger agency, um, but concentrating exclusively on what was then the start of the commercially viable internet. So this is still before uh, Google ads and it's before Facebook and all that sort of thing. But it's at a time when you could actually make money from building things for the internet, you know, sort of dot-com boomy sort of era. And that was, a, I guess, a, a transition to a, being a, the, the leader of a, a team of 10, I think up to 15 to 20 people at a 50, 60, 70-person organisation. And then I, as you get sort of, as you accumulate power in the organisation, um, you also start to potentially come into conflict with the existing powers in the organisation. I had only ever been at most one rung away from the, the CEO in an organisation like that. So although I've worked in large, say, public sector organisations or educational organisations uh, when, when I was a, a student, uh, as my career, I've only ever worked in smallish private sector organisations and quite close to the top, either because it was a very small organisation or just because of you know, where I was in the hierarchy. And about... 12 or 13 years ago, I'd been working at this, this organisation for a while and I was starting to come into conflict with the, the people who ran the organisation. Not all of them, um, but my personal philosophies and the sort of work that I wanted to do and where I was going meant that I was starting to come in conflict with them. And myself and the CEO of that organisation uh, decided to partner in what was in a new project, which was the, the thing that I do now. So um, we founded this this organization called ice lab which is uh what i do now which is a small boutique design and development studio and i started that in 2006 with that that person who was a, a silent partner bought him out 
sold the uh, simultaneously sold uh, two thirds of the organization to two other partners. So I'm a one third partner in that organization. And here I am 13, 14 years later. Do you feel comfortable talking about the what what the conflicts were around in, in your previous role where you decided you had to break out and build a thing on your own or with someone who saw eye to eye with you? Sure. Well, the, the <laughs> I mean, I've always had what you might call constructive tension with the leadership of the organization when I wasn't the leader of the organization. Um, so if I think back to the, the, the first advertising agency and to the boss who gave me a terrific break by making me creative director, uh, he and I used to argue all the time, essentially about not so much about business philosophy, but about just, you know, the direction that a particular advertising agency should go or whatever. Like it, we had just different actual logistics, yeah, yeah. different generational perspectives in some way. Although now, you know, as the kind of the grumpy old man in my organization, I feel much of the same pressures that he felt. And so we're seeing it from the other perspective. So, yeah, that, that stupid boss guy from back then is now like the wise patriarch. Um, <laughs> I see how you got to the point where you could ask for that job. <laughs> I want to know about that too, actually. Sure. So, but the, the, the immediate situation that happened um, at this, this other organization was that the, the work that I was doing, the interactive work, which was ma- mainly website work, was being done as an adjunct to or in the service of a larger marketing push. So, we're now at the stage, it's maybe 2004, 2005, where the transition is starting, where money is coming out of, say, newspapers and going into the internet where money is being taken out of television advertising and moving towards people spending money on building great websites and stuff like that. And I could see that transition coming. The organization that I was in was um, heavily invested from a client perspective and from an intellectual perspective in what you might call traditional advertising. And it wasn't so much that I could see like the monetary writing on the wall it was just that I didn't really care about the advertising part of it. And I wanted to build cool interactive things and websites that did things and where they were the main deal, not where they were just part of some other thing. And so from, from their perspective, they had a guy who was supposed to be augmenting their marketing efforts, running off and doing cool internet things, which didn't connect to the rest of the organization. Um, from my perspective, I was being hampered by being tied to this, you know, big old dumb organization, which didn't have the same perspectives that I did about what could be done with digital stuff. So we both had legitimate points of view. It's just that we didn't share them. Um, <laughs> and also there's a, there's a kind of a command and control thing as well. Um, I have, and I guess it's super relevant for a podcast called Authority Issues. Um, I have not a hell of a lot of respect for uh, the imposition of authority where I don't think it's particularly legitimate. So I'm a kind of a jerk to have as an employee. <laughs> Which is why you have to be uh, at the top of the org. <laughs> well, it's kind of weird because I don't really feel myself as the top of the org now. Like the kind of org that I've built is, well, it seems to me to be very flat. And I'm aware that my perspective is not necessarily the perspective of people who work for it. And I say this fully aware that the people who work in my company will probably be listening to this podcast. Um, I don't. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I am not the sort of person who wants to be a boss. I deliberately 
sold out my majority share in the organization because to me being a, an equal member of a small and dedicated team is what makes work enjoyable i don't want to be at the apex of a pyramid um and, and a lot of that is you know, it's it's a it's hard sometimes to, to disentangle your personal point of view and your political point of view. And I suppose they, they inform each other, but that's the kind of person that I am. It's, it's kind of weird because I got my start in advertising, which is like a hyper-capitalist thing. It's, it's the, the sort of the apogee of what capitalism is about. But basically, I'm not that sort of person. I'm working inside um, like a society which, which, which is made possible by and where the only like, game you can play is to, to, to essentially buy and sell things. But that's not what I'm particularly interested in. I'm really interested in building cool stuff. And that's what we try to do at IceLab. Okay. Um, what, what has been the hardest or most embarrassing lesson you've had to learn on the way to here where you're at the top of your org with a team? Hearing um, the top of the org with a team. <laughs> yes. That transition we were talking about from being the arrogant young man to the wise patriarch. Um, the, when do you think we'll make that transition? Well, <laughs> it's, 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 it's always been a couple of years off, and <laughs> I guess it'll still be a couple of years off later on. As, as I grow older, I think the only regret that I have is that um, that I didn't get wiser sooner. Um, mm. I suppose that happens with everybody, but I, I really wish that I knew what I knew now 20 years ago so that I could unmake all the mistakes that I made. Um, of course, I'm still making new mistakes. It's just it puts you onto a different rung and you get the opportunity to make new errors. I think the hardest thing that I've learned is that not everyone is like you. I used to think that every person was had the same kinds of motivations and the same buttons could be pushed and would be encouraged by, discouraged by, motivated by the same things which would motivate me. And that just isn't the case. Um, if it, it, I've had, I, I'll get, call them, I suppose, impedance mismatches with people where we didn't really understand how to talk to each other about things, where, where, where we had these gulfs of misunderstanding where we both weren't really able to connect with what each other's drivers were. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's challenging because as a leader, as someone who's trying to, to grow your people who's trying to give people what will be good for them which is not necessarily what they want like what, what you feel will actually you know in, enhance who they are it's very easy to see someone else and to see the the, the, the gaps in, in 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 their capability or to see the typical failure modes that they have it's very hard to see in yourself and yeah i think that the the main thing i've learned is just to understand that but i think like so, I mean, this is something I give a lot of thought to. You're a, you know, relatively well-informed person and you've spent a lot of time thinking about the opinions that you have. And it's hard to not draw the conclusion that if everyone else actually thought about it, they would come to the same conclusion as me, right? Like I'm being logical about this. Like if I'm wrong, I would believe something else, right? Like, so, so I must not be wrong. And, but the problem is, is everyone's starting point is so different. You know, the, the values they bring to the table, the things they care about, that uh, even if they're drawing extremely logical conclusions, which let's be honest, an awful lot of people in our lives don't seem to draw, but uh, even if they're drawing extremely logical conclusions, it is, I, I'm with you. I, I, I'm just saying, I understand. It's, it's really frustrating. 
or even if you are right and and the other person is wrong their approach you know the way that you have to uh, interact with them to get to there to get them to see your point of view can be highly variable yeah so, absolutely yeah you know. You don't know what I mean, people have got different uh, fears. They've got different responses to stress. Uh, I had a I had an employee years ago uh, working in advertising who would essentially crumble when it came to tight deadlines and big stress. And that is a real problem if you're working in advertising because you need to get that television ad out by tomorrow morning. Um, and for me, that 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 moment, that, that time where this has to be done, led me to come up with good solutions to do things, led me to focus on what I was doing, led me to, 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 to um, not concentrate on other things and to, and to just do only the task at hand. And that was enormously useful in getting that done. Whereas for this other person, they just weren't able to do that. And that, does that mean that they were deficient? Well, they weren't perhaps the right person for that particular job. I, I, I'm totally aware that, that the... Um, you know, you, people who flourish in a particular scenario um, may be likely to think that that's the right kind of scenario for everybody. And it's just not. People have got different strengths. Yeah, that, I mean, that's something I think about a lot just in having reports is just because this person succeeds here doesn't mean they'll succeed elsewhere. And just because this person failed here doesn't mean they won't be wildly successful elsewhere. We have a specific culture and a specific time and place, but that's yeah. interesting. It's, it's um, really hard to see someone do badly somewhere, like at, at your own is. place. And, 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 and I mean, everyone will say this, but the hardest thing of all is you know, having to fire someone. And then you see that they flourish somewhere else. And you think, well... You're like, what did I do wrong? Yeah, or yeah, and what, how did I fail this person? But, but maybe the process of going through working with your organisation, um, um, having to leave because they weren't, you know, they didn't have the right fit for whatever reason, has actually taking them to a better place. That's actually a, a really good thing. I mean, it's kind of like seeing your, you know, your ex-girlfriend be happy with another partner. You're actually really glad when you see it happen. Yeah, if you're a nice person, you... you, you yeah, know. I mean, it's a bit like... like <laughs> I just make the assumption that everyone feels that way. <laughs> I've heard that people feel like that. <laughs> and well, and so, this is sort of... Oh, go ahead, Kendall. No, no. Uh, well, I was going to say, if this is sort of related to the question we tend to ask next, which is... Uh, in the sense that you relate to different people on different levels and you have to adjust your approach to them. Um, uh, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And uh, how does that affect your work? Um, well, I can turn on the extrovert thing pretty easily. Like I'm a pretty capable uh, extrovert when the, the, the need arises. But it certainly, uh, it, takes a, it takes effort to do it. Um, I guess it depends on how much I like the people and how comfortable I feel around them and how much work I have to put in to, to, you know, to be me for that, for that group of people. Um, so if I'm around people that I really enjoy the company of and um, with whom I feel comfortable, then I can keep on going for, for ages. And I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty extroverted guy. Um, but, yeah, my health meter runs low and then, you know, after a while I'm, just, mm. I'm pr pretty ready to go, go and... Uh, be by myself for a while and I enjoy solitude. I mean, I, I enjoy my, my quiet time. And I you know, go for a solo work, walk every day at, at lunchtime just because I need some time by myself to, to, to think. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think calling myself an introvert would be probably kidding myself, I think. Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy to be around other people. 
Um, <laughs> well, it depends. It depends on how much effort it takes, like you said. Yeah, yeah. It depends on how much of a jerk the other people are, really. If they're nice people, I love being with them. Do you get powered up by being around cool people? Um, yeah. That tends to lead to, to indicate that you're an extrovert, but hey, maybe you're maybe you're just, you know, one foot in either camp. Hard well, to say. You, know, you sometimes you have to ghost from the party because you've had enough and it's time to go. <laughs> Every, everybody yep. goes to the party eventually. <laughs> I think I ghosted for my brother's bucks party, so I'm not going to that. Oh, there you go. Wow, that's <laughs> well. So I want to I want to pick at something that, uh, that you know I, I know about you, Michael. That you're you're working kind of in politics on the side. Can we talk about that? Can you share yeah. a little bit about what you're doing? Because I have one specific question around that that I want to hear your answer to. But uh, first, tell us what you're doing, kind of in your spare time with that. Sure. Well, I mentioned that I work in. You know, we work inside a, a, a society which requires us to make money for a living and so on. But we also want to try to achieve important things with our lives. And one of the things that I'm doing um, in my spare time, and I have a fair amount of spare time, um, is to work with the, uh, the local Greens political party, which in Australia is actually a reasonably significant political party. We have we have elected representatives at all levels of government in Australia and in my own um, location in Canberra in the ACT, we are in coalition in government. So, and it's a progressive political party um, and it's about, you know, environmental issues and human rights issues and the kinds of things that you would expect the Greens to be into. Um, and I have just started doing that. Um, previously, I had just been a person who, um, you know, rants on Twitter and gets angry at the news um, and decided that I should do something about it. And so over the last year or so, I've started to become more involved with them and we have an election campaign coming up in the next uh, nine months or so in Australia, a federal election, and I'll be reasonably heavily involved in that. And yes, talking about being an extrovert came out of a really great meeting, um, like last night, for example, with the, those people. And it's great working with a bunch of people who all share your values and are trying to achieve something which is probably quite hard, uh, but uh, is very gratifying if you do it. So that's what I'm doing. What was the question? Yeah, so then my question is, and this is a little bit along the lines of last we talked, I just think your answer to this is pretty interesting and probably very interesting to the general audience, which is, you know, on the one hand, you're the leader of this organization and have been for a very long time. You've been at the top of the organization chart where, you know, nobody's really coming and saying, Michael, you must do X or Y, uh, or you're out of here, right? Like you, you kind of run the show and call the shots and you get to make big decisions about big things and cast big vision and go in directions you want to go in. And then, uh, on the other side, you're involved in this, uh, you know, this government thing where you're essentially an individual contributor who's, who's got a, you know, small role and an unbelievable literal bureaucracy above you and I, just talk a little bit about the difference in that because you know you're kind of unlike most people who I think are either an individual contributor or a leader you're doing both at the same time uh you know in a in a formalized two formalized roles and so just talk about the the difference like is it is it just delightful to go work somewhere a little bit where you're not the person in charge and people above you can make horrible decisions and it's not your problem or like you know what what does it feel like uh, just kind of going back and forth between those two? Now, it's fair to say that the the Greens as a political party is not a super hierarchical. I mean, it's the sort of place that you would imagine the the, the kinds of people who vote Green. You know, it's a lot of decisions are made by consensus and so on. But yes, it is a large organization which is. Uh, 
the organization in which is opaque to me in some ways and I'm relatively new in the organization so I neither have sought nor do I have a lot of actual individual influence and yeah it's actually quite freeing to to be to be in that position um, I get tasked by the campaign manager to do some things and I'm actually pretty willing to to go along with that and it's quite nice to to not feel like I need to impose or provide a lot of a vision there and that's that's actually quite a nice dynamic to have um, because it means that I I do get the opportunity to to um, to experience what it's like to be um, to have less not so much responsibility but for my individual contribution to be um, con contributory to rather than steering of the the, the, the general um, thrust of the organization and that's actually quite satisfying and it's I mean as a person I don't always want to be imposing my will on things um, I am really quite willing to to work with other people and to not feel like oh, I always have to be the person who is making decisions um, I think sometimes to to my detriment to, to be honest if I think about some of the things that I have done in my career so far, on occasion, I have thought about things too much and done too little, and I might have been better off being more impulsive. Um, I am, by nature, a fairly sort of thoughtful Hamlet-esque person rather than Laertes sort of person who jumps in the grave. I'm, I'm not as... Um, there are some people for whom making the decision quickly and getting it done and getting it out is, is their, their approach, and I perhaps other people think that I'm like that, but actually I spend a fair bit of time thinking about things. Um, and so there's something quite nice about working in the political arena where I'm not, um, I'm not the person who has all the answers. I haven't been there the longest. I have been there for a short amount of time and I'm, I'm in that learning mode and I'm, I'm, I'm soaking it up and I'm being willing to accept other people's points of view much more openly than I perhaps have been, where I have essentially been you know, I've been the nucleus of an organisation which has been growing for you know, 12, 13 years. Um, it's a very different situation to coming into a, to an existing organisation that has its own culture and its own ways of doing things. And they are ways that I am quite compatible with. I don't chafe at those things, although sometimes I am amazed at some of the things that they don't have in place. It's one of the things which is kind of strange. You come from a, I come from a small, tight commercial organization to a you know bureaucratic large mushy organization it's yeah it's a very different situation so you don't have difficulty saying not saying well you know i would do this differently because i feel like that's a i mean that's a problem i have especially i'm also politically involved in going to groups and working with groups uh we're all learning together and obviously people who've had experience running campaigns are going to have the most information and expertise on what should be done next in a campaign but it can be very difficult uh, to just be a doer, take instructions and do the thing when you're like, well, I don't know that this is the greatest idea. I mean, do you deal with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or do you just stuff it down and just do what you're told? Or do you, do you have a way of, of moving that idea up in the, in, in, you know, in the organization that you're in? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I can absolutely say, hey, I think we could do it this way and that would be good. And one of the reasons that they want me on board is I have some experience at doing other kinds of things. I mean, that's, they de definitely are amenable to that. It's not like I'm sitting there wondering why the hell they don't do things properly. It's not a, at all. It's, it's more that 
It's more that um, the kinds of problems that I have and the kinds of capabilities and limitations that I have as a person who works in a small private organization are very different to the ones that are large um, regulated organizations and political parties, um, despite what you may think in, say, the US federal scene, political parties are, um, have a lot of things that they are required to do and things that they should do from a process perspective. And I'm learning how those things work. And I definitely see opportunities for doing things faster or quicker or better. And a lot of people see those. It's just quite difficult when you don't have the command and control structure that you have in a, in a private organization to actually get some of those things done. And the kind of organization that, that, that you know, a progressive political organization is, the weakness of that sort of organization is that it's difficult sometimes to get things done just because there are so many, like, decisions by consensus or having multiple different kinds of stakeholders or a very diverse group of participants or a lot of volunteers and stuff like that that just makes it difficult to get things done. And I'm not, I don't think that's a problem because that's also a strength. <laughs> do, when you walk into a room, do people give you more heed because you're a successful entrepreneur after all these years? Or, or do you sit on the same rung as the guy who, uh, you know, whatever, cleans gutters for a living and is just as involved in the, uh, in the party? And, and, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get no special treatment. Um, a lot of people don't even know, the, you know my background. Some people do. I mean, I have, I'm not without connections in the party and all that sort of thing. Um, but my, yeah, I don't try to sort of swing anything around like that. I'm, I'm just a guy. Um, and, and I enjoy that. I mean, I have a political commitment to essentially the, you know, the equality of all human beings. So it's, it would be very counterproductive for me to try to you know, pretend that I've got um, more insight or uh, more capability than someone else. And you feel like you have a, a different relationship. It sounds like you've learned uh, about the differences in your relationship with authority uh, in terms of how you felt about it when you were younger versus how you feel about it now. It sounds like it almost feels like a stepping into a cool pool of you know not having authority when you're working uh, in your political act activism versus having to make decisions, having to have responsibility. Is that kind of how you see it now? Is it different than when you were younger? Yeah, I don't really know because my like I have always been someone who was not so much resistant to authority, but some, for someone, if I don't think the authority is justified, I tend to just ignore it or to to, to route around it. Um. So for me, uh, authority is not, like, I, I don't see authority as something which is, uh, needs to be heeded in, in, in particular, and it isn't something that should be imposed. I think ideally, uh, ideally decisions get made and, and you move forward in a way um, which is driven by making good decisions about things, not because someone said so. Um, and nevertheless, when it comes to, say, rules that I think are justified, I'm extremely law-abiding. So, for example, I'll happily flout regulations which I think are unimportant or irrelevant or, you know, traffic signs which I think are stupid. But there are other things which I think are, are, are totally reasonable and I will be really quite pig-headed about obeying those things. So if I go into something in the, I don't know, 
the rules of the engagement for this thing are such that whatever, then I will stick to those things because I think if I have made a, a decision to, to, to go in and to, to work under those conditions, then I should, I should agree to the rules. It's like, it's like deciding to play a game and then saying, well, we're not going to use that rule. It's silly. Like, that's the game that you're playing. So in this game of life, what are the signs that you're not obeying? <laughs> Did you have a road sign specific well, in mind when you said that? I'm now, like, I hate <laughs> yield signs. It's either stop or go, but there should not be a yield. Or what's the... uh, well, you see, I'm, I'm, I, I did philosophy at university, so I believe in the, the, the categorical imperative. You, know, you should do things such that you wish that everyone else would do them as well. So the, 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 um, it's the golden rule. You know, it's it's, it's the, the, the rule where, where what if everyone did this? And so what if everyone uh, disobeyed this parking sign because it was dumb? Well, that wouldn't be a big deal. But what if everyone didn't stop at stop signs? Well, that would be terrible. And so I think it's your, your moral responsibility to do things which are, you know, which um, enhance the common good, as it were. That's, the, I guess, the, the approach that I would take. And yes. Or to have an understanding of how your actions affect the world around you. Yeah. There are some yeah. people. There are some people for whom, for whom, just doing the the thing which is good for them is that's what counts. And I, I'm completely opposed to that point of view. Um, for me, the, the the important thing is is living in a good world. And if that makes life a little bit harder for me, then that's just how it goes. It just this reminds me very briefly. You know, in in Asia, at one point, uh, a friend of mine got got a ticket for running a red light and for parking illegally. And the parking illegally ticket was five times the cost of running a red light. And he's like, do you see the value space has here over life? <laughs> like red, red light could have killed somebody. And here's this little tiny fine, whereas I parked in the wrong spot. So some of it's cultural too, the, the park versus, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. Okay. Well, um, to move on to the next question, uh, what's an issue that you're dealing with at work right now, a leadership issue that's, that's kind of top, top of mind? And maybe if not at work, maybe uh, in the party, uh, but something that you're, you're chewing on that you feel comfortable sharing on the air. I think the, the main thing that I'm trying to work on in myself, and I, I consider leadership issues as basically being personal development issues, is that if I have a, a, a tension, if I have a thing that I'm thinking about when I'm in the shower, or if I have a thing that I've written down a note about and I haven't resolved, that I need to articulate that and to get that out and not to keep on stewing about it forever. Because I recognise in myself that there are things, like there are things that I would like to do with IceLab or there are things that I want to do in my personal life or my political life where I have, you know, I can literally see it in, my, in my, my journal. I've written a note down about it three months ago and I'm still thinking about it three months later and I haven't done anything about it. And that is, it's just dumb because what it makes me is it makes me sulky and it makes me wonder why things aren't happening the way that I want them to happen. And I haven't told anyone about it. I haven't actually articulated it strongly, put my point of view and then said I'm going to do it. I've just been hoping that people will do the right thing and that it'll just become better um and that's just me being an idiot basically um and part of it is because i don't I, I i'm i'm not wanting to impose a point of view that i'm not sure about so that's the that's the 
the tension inside me is that I have maybe a, a desire to do, say, this with, with my company. And, oh, but I'm not quite sure about it. And I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to, to go all out and say, we're doing this now, let's, let's go forward and I will book no interference um, because I'm not sure about it. But what I really should be doing is I, sh I should be clearly articulating both to myself and to the people who are affected what I want to do to, um, to argue for it convincingly. And again, this is you know, to argue for it not in a hierarchical authority type way, but in a, um, I think we should do this and here are the good reasons why. And to, to air that out, because if I don't do that, I'll just have it stinking up inside me for a long time. And that, yeah, it's essentially a personal development issue, really. That's interesting. So the, the thing that you're dealing with right now is, is, let me just say it back and tell me if I have this right. Like, don't just get caught stewing on something, but actually like get it out and process it because you end up being a worse leader by just letting it nag at you. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Because I, partly because if I think that I should to create a change, then the, if that change is not being created, then it's bad. But also because it makes me grumpy. Um, I'm very aware that my own personal you know, emotional state has an effect on the people that I work with. If I'm cranky about something or I'm disappointed in something or I think we should be doing something and we're not doing it, then it doesn't help anyone if I don't talk about it. Um, but it's important, I think, to articulate it well, not to what I had done in the past. I think, uh, particularly as I, you know, back in the early days when I was worse at what I do now, um, that I would uh, toss off a quick comment or I would say something incomplete or I would hint at something and hope that other people picked it up. Not that I hoped it, I just would do the amount that I thought was necessary. This is again this whole solipsistic thinking that everyone is like you. Well, if everyone thought like me, then if I said this thing, then everyone would understand it. Well, why would they do that? I need to be more <laughs> clear both to myself and to other people about what it is that I want to be, you know, be really quite clear about it. I mean, you could say the same thing about, say, a relationship. If you're in a relationship and you want to bring something up, you're probably better off talking about it than you are just, you know, being cranky about it. That seems like a classic relationship problem. <laughs> and and it, it, I was going to ask, like, this sounds very, very applicable to one's personal life. Um, has becoming a leader affected your personal life? And would you say that's a positive or a negative? Uh, yeah, I would say yes. Um, my partner and I have quite different career structures. She works um, in a larger um, organization, much more bureaucratic, many more layers of, of um, organization. But she also has her own leadership challenges. And we talk about those quite a lot. Um, it's a great way to, for us to, we, it, we, we are sufficiently far apart in what we do, but yet sufficiently close in like the kinds of problems that we have that we can contribute to each other's uh, challenges without having to you know, sort of step on each other's toes. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I really do think that the, kinds of problems that you have in your career and the kinds of problems that you have in your relationship are probably really just stemming from your own personal growth, and your inadequacy or otherwise as a person. So yes, I mean, any work that you do to become a better leader probably also makes you a better partner and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. Can you think of an example of that, that uh, that's worked well or worked poorly in your relationship? Like you're having a one-on-one -on -one with your partner and... <laughs> Talking about <laughs> leadership discussions. Well, I mean, to be honest, a lot of being in a good relationship is about 
um, dealing with the domestic logistics and all of the little things which will you know, annoy you if they're not done properly. There's a sense in which getting those things done right, like if you attend to the finances and the, you know, the household and all those sorts of things and do them efficiently and well, the kind of things that, that you need to do for your organisation as well, then that leaves you a lot more relationship space to, to, to love each other and to be kind rather than to be dealing with bills. How to load the dishwasher. Exactly. Why, why aren't you doing this? Thing? How do the plates go in, damn it? Forks down or up? Yeah, actually, our dishwasher is broken at the moment. It's now a very nice, shiny cupboard. Um, <laughs> but you can keep the dishes in well, there. There's only two of us. We don't really need to use it very often. Yeah, I mean, I mean my partner may have different opinions about the degree to which I'm you know, a compatible domestic companion. But uh, yeah, I mean, those things are actually pretty important. It's the sort of thing which you can dismiss, but actually getting those things right is, uh, <laughs> it goes a, a long way towards having a good relationship in my opinion. But also like, just, just emotional honesty, I suppose you would say. I think, um, yeah, yeah. I think your partner Absolutely. should argue that if your arms are working, the dishwasher is not broken. <laughs> <laughs> that works both ways though. <laughs> your, your arms, my arms. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everyone should do their turn in the barrel, that's in right. my opinion. That's correct. But then what if they don't wash the dishes to your liking? Oh, that's a problem. A See, I used to work in, in a restaurant. I was, when I worked my way through university, I was um, at the start, yeah, a toilet cleaner and dishwasher. And then later on, a, you know, a prep cook and then a chef, a, a cook at a restaurant. And so I have opinions about the way that things get cooked. And that is something that I actually do have to um, hold back on. And if I think about that is perhaps the major source of domestic uh, disturbance in my house is, mm. you know, it's like, oh, you're chopping down the <laughs> right. Oh, so what goes yeah. into guacamole? I yeah. also worked as a dishwasher, <laughs> and I cling very tightly to the Shel Silverstein poem about if you have to wash the dishes and you drop one on the floor, maybe they won't let you wash the dishes anymore. You know, like that's that's my philosophy. Yeah. You've you've carried it the other way. Uh, but that's the cowards out, man, <laughs> doing it badly so that they'll stop you from doing it. I am not falling for that, Kendall. See, once, once you've done not a whole restaurant that. worth of dishes, doing just like a domestic set of dishes seems so easy. <laughs> There's not 200. <laughs> I'm fine. Well, speaking of having your dishwasher out of commission, if money were no object, what would you do with your life? I, would you do something dramatically different? Uh, I think that I would probably do some of the stuff that I'm doing only just at a much higher level. So, yeah, I'm, in, I'm involved in politics at the moment. I would fund a range of political causes, um, mainly to do with the environment and with, um, with human rights issues. Um, and then I would give those people stacks of money, say, do your stuff, and then I would spend quite a lot of time in the mountains or uh -huh. in the sea or doing outdoorsy stuff in general. Um, one of the prime motivators for what I do and for the political work that I'm in is that I uh, love the natural world and I want to be in it and to be nice to it. Um, so, yeah, that's what I do. I'd uh, give a whole bunch of energetic people lots of money to save the earth and then I would go and enjoy the earth. Go hide out in a cabin in the mountains and go skiing a lot. There'd be skiing and climbing and swimming in the ocean and all those kinds of things that you do. And then, you know, just dropping into places and saying, hey, good work. Here's another $100,000 to continue to fight the power. Oh, benevolent. Yeah. Benevolent. <laughs> Lovely. 
<laughs> uh, I like that idea a lot. I would also love to have a lot more money to give to my to political causes that I'm interested in. Uh, I think that a lot more people should answer that question that way. <laughs> You're going to get the money without selling your soul, though. That's the challenge, right? Yeah, capitalism. Yeah, wait, that's not how capitalism works. Hell. First, you sell your soul, then you get the money, then you go pay for your car. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do is to not do that. I I haven't you know had a, like a two phase life. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to live a good life simultaneously. With I think work. you're doing it wrong. And yeah. I think that's possible. <laughs> no. It's a, yeah, you think you're doing it wrong? I think it's a fine. I think you're no, doing it a lot better I, than most people. Yeah, having your, come on. Uh, I guess I'm the only one who gets to give you a hard time, Kendall. I guess you have to give sure. someone else a hard time. All right. Well, we are running into our at the end of our time slot here. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I made a decision a long time ago to just call myself my name. So I am Michael Honey on Twitter and I am michaelhoney.com on the internet and probably Michael Honey other places as well. Yeah, but like probably linking out from your website. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And good luck with your uh, with your political efforts. <laughs> I'll tell you how I go. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.